0: You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a panel from Transnational Humanities Concept and Praxis The 2021 UCD Humanities Institute PhD Conference This online conference took place on the 19th of February This podcast features panel 1 Knowledge, Identity, Culturality The speakers in this panel were Diana Fana from the University of Fort Hare who presented on How can intercultural philosophy contribute to social integration in a changing world? Menzen Yue from University College Dublin presented on Translating Ancient Greek Texts in China, 1950s to 1960s, A Transnational Practice and the Rebuilding of Modern Chinese Education System and Claire Kelly from University College Dublin presented on I Write As Though I Am Telling the Story Orally, Jennifer Nansen Buga-Makumbi and the Construction of an Author as Storyteller Identity in the Transnational Literary Market. The panel was chaired by Susan Mihalik, from UCD, was preceded by a welcome from University College Dublin Humanities Institute Director, Professor Anna Fuchs.
1: I would like to begin by thanking uh, the organizing committee Bianca, Mike, Kelly, and yourself, uh, Shengfeng. Feng. You have invested a lot of time in organizing uh, this conference, which is extremely topical and fits extremely well under the research strand of transnationalizing the humanities, which is one of our main research strands at the uh, UCD Humanities Institute. Just for everybody's interest, I I really want to emphasize that the um, HI PhD uh, conference is an annual event organized completely by the uh, PhD students. We offer some administrative advice and support and financial support where it's needed, of course, but actually the theme and the conception comes from uh, the in-house residents. And if you look at the composition of the organizing committee, you will of course notice that it is an extremely interdisciplinary uh, committee reflecting the interdisciplinary perspective of the UCD Humanities Institute. So in, in our institute, we want to come together to break down subject boundaries, to to explore how we can in fact contribute to this turn from from national humanities studies to transnational humanities studies. And this is is of course happening on the back of a general move away from the container theories of uh, nationalism towards a recognition of the complexities and entanglements of today's world. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, all your papers, to your questions and to your discussions. I also want to welcome, um, I'm not sure that she's here yet, but I want to uh, officially welcome the keynote speaker, Dr. Alva Kenny from Mary Immaculate College in Limerick, who's going to address a really, really important topic, namely shaping space while stateless, insights from transcultural interactions and, of course, statelessness is a condition that afflicts millions of people today who uh, have been forced to migrate and have lost their homes without arriving uh, in safe destinations. So, looking at the programme, we can look forward to a very uh, interesting and stimulating interdisciplinary conference this afternoon with lots of stimulating discussions. I also want to thank, as director of the Institute, um, Ricky uh, and Valerie, but especially Ricky, uh, who has taken care of this conference, providing uh, ongoing and and continual support. So, uh, obviously, uh, another dimension of of, um, uh, the current topic is that this is now an online conference. We have done many online events in uh, recent months, and we have um, learned a lot from from it in terms of, you know, the ability to um, hold conferences um, at a distance. But also, uh, I suppose we are realizing that this format lends itself to transnational collaboration um, in a very direct way. So we are practicing what we are talking about by holding this as an online webinar. So thanks again for organizing this, and I look forward to uh, a lively afternoon. So hi, everybody. Welcome to the first
2: panel discussion of the day entitled Knowledge, Identity, Culturality. Um, you'll hear presentations from each of the three panelists first, and then we'll open it up for the Q&A. Uh, so we'll kick off the session with um, Diana, uh, Diana Ikorofana, um, so, Diana, yeah, uh, she's currently a PhD candidate with the Department of Philosophy, University of Fort Hare, South Africa. Um, she's also a member of the Conversational School of Philosophy. Her teaching and research interests include, uh, but are not limited to, African philosophy, African studies, African ethics, uh, political and social philosophy, and gender studies. Um, and today, Diana will present the paper entitled, How Can Intercultural Philosophy? contribute to social integration in a changing world. So welcome, Diana. Thank
3: you. Uh, Hello, everyone. The topic of my uh, paper is how intercultural philosophy can contribute to social integration in a changing world. Um, I will start by giving a brief introduction to my topic. You know, when we we theorize about the problem of uh, social integration, Most um, um, social integration theorists do it from um, a background of um, including people that are disadvantaged, or they are trying to close the gap between um, the well-off and those that are quite economically disadvantaged in their society. However, my understanding of social integration or the understanding of social integration I am proposing uh, in my paper is one that uh, aims to project the concept of transnationalism. Hence, I am arguing for an understanding of social integration that is um, against um, homogenizing values and the assimilation of values. So I intend to achieve the aim of my paper through using the concept of intercultural philosophy. What then is this concept of intercultural philosophy? The concept of intercultural philosophy is one that seeks to harness the positive values there is in uh, uh, different cultures, different traditions, philosophies, and worldviews. So, if we bring this understanding of intercultural philosophy to play in the idea of social integration, what then will become the implication of this concept of intercultural philosophy for social integration? How will this understanding of intercultural philo- philosophy encourage our understanding of social integration as not an uh, 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 a place activity but an interplace? activity so intercultural philosophy strives on co- the complementarity of ideas. This is not to say that there, w- there, there, there wouldn't be contestations from different worldviews or perspective, but I argue that it is in this contestation that our our reasoning become um, mature as in our understanding of uh, our existence and what philosophy is. Uh, become a positive addition to our mutual intelligibility when we go through this form of uh, contestation. So how can um, uh, intercultural philosophy become a transnational concept? Intercultural philosophy will create room where different philosophical ideas can thrive. And how is this possible? Through the, uh, the, the harnessing of different worldviews. These different worldviews, most of the time, is not uh, to homogenize our understanding of, 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 of uh, social integration, of our, our understanding of culture or of our values, but to create room, we have different understanding of um, our culture, different aspects of our culture, of philosophy. Can thrive, and in thriving, we are not saying that um, uh, uh, philosophy will become um, 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 a thing that is geared towards projecting a a a common value. No, it is a process where every single value will be given a space to thrive. So, this um, type of um, uh, the thriving of different values can only be possible through the concept I, uh, I, I, I term and um, complementary personhood. The idea of complementary personhood here yeah, is is one that I, I argue is uh, important when we are talking about social integration because it opens up uh, us up for understanding our existence as complementary our existence as complementary. Hence, if we are talking about social integration, we put this understanding of our personhood in our mind when we cross borders, because our understanding of personhood is not limited to a particular place. Our understanding of social integration also is also not limited to a particular place. So if we have this complementary idea of our existence, We won't have the issue of segregation. We're not going to have the issue of um, exclusion. We're not going to have the problem of xenophobia. So we're not going to be having all those issues if we begin to look at ourselves as a complementary aspect of of, uh, existence. So when we bring this idea of complementary personhood to social integration, we have one more thing we have to do. It is not all about acknowledging the fact that we are complement in existence. No, something needs to be done. And what is that thing we must do for us to to achieve social integration as a transnational transnational project? It is complementary reflection. This idea of complementary reflection Gives us like it's a positive, or it becomes a positive heuristic fault where we get to analyze this our our this new understanding of complementarity, and with complementary reflection, it it helps us to like dispel our negative understanding of the other because we have this understanding of what we believe is, uh maybe we have this understanding of somebody that does not look exactly like us that is from a different Society, different country, we tend to have a preconceived notion of what we think those people are. So, with complementary reflection, it helps us to do away with our polarizing, considered ideas of the other, and it also helps us to do away with the absolutizing of ourselves and standard as the 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 the, 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 the standard that. Um, every other culture must look up to. Hence, what I argue for is a change of mindset. And it is in the change of mindset that we can begin our journey towards social integration from a transnational perspective. How do we change this mindset? It's for us to always evaluate and reevaluate our understanding of social integration what is social integration? Are we trying to discuss or pro- profile solutions to our society problems that we only limit our understanding of ourselves within a place? Or we are trying to profile solutions to the, the, the problems of social integration that can help enrich philosophy as, um, sorry, that would help enrich Uh, that will help rather create a mutual intelligibility of different worldviews that will also enrich philosophy as a human enterprise. So my argument is centered on the fact that social integration must transcend a context or a place. It must go beyond a place. Hence, it is important that social integration becomes an interplex activity. It is only when social integration Becomes an interplace activity that we will say that we have begun our journey towards transnationalism. Thank you.
2: All right. Thanks, Diana. Okay. That was, uh, was a great presentation. Thank you. And I see that um, we've got Mengchen Yue's uh, joined us. So I'm going to introduce her as our next speaker. Uh, Mengchen Yue, she's recently uh, received her PhD, so Dr. Mengchen. Uh, from the School of Classics, University College Dublin, in 2020, um, her research interests involve ethnicity in ancient Greece and China, racism in classical antiquity, Greek historiography and rhetoric, and the reception of Greco-Roman world of the Greco-Roman world in China. Uh, she'll be presenting a paper entitled "Translating Ancient Greek Texts in China: A Transnational Practice and the Rebuilding of Modern Chinese Educational Systems." So, welcome, Meng Chen.
4: Mm. Hello, everyone. So my topic is as uh, thanks, Susan, for the introduction. And my topic is translating Asian Greek texts in China, uh, the like during the earlier period of the Republic. So in the art of translation, Liu Jingyu defines idea of cross cultural translation as a contact room. She notes that uh, uh, within this contact room. Commonalities between the translators and translations occur, and different levels of negotiations are needed, different from uh, Liu Jingyu's impression of translation as a universal act and its commonalities. Lydia Yu, in her book *Translingual Practice*, researches translation in cross-cultural exchanges between China and the West, and emphasizes between um, emphasizes the commensurability of Western and Chinese languages. She argues that translation is merely an attempt to establish a hypothetical equivalents between guest and host languages. In this regard, meaning is historically contingent and shaped by power relations. With a case study on the term modernity, Liu argues that there was no homogeneous meaning of modernity in Chinese, but translated modernity. This complicated uh, process of introduction, adaptation, and the reconfiguration reconfigure- of the Western conception modernity further side on, side, side light on the power relation between the West and the East, and the we concept reception and translation in a cross-cultural context, especially at a time when some post-colonial and post-structuralist scholars have questioned whether this process of reception through translation is even theoretically possible. Besides the incumbent of languages, there are other facts that might influence translation and its journey in the host language. So, in this paper, I explore the dynamics between the flow of text, ideas, and the practice of translation from a transnational uh, perspective. It will focus on one Chinese scholar and translator, Luan Yansheng's practice and interpretation of Asian Greek texts in 1950s and 1960s. It looks at how the national and transnational forces influenced the individual translators' intention, preference, knowledge, structure, and practice shown at textual and lexical levels. So Luan Sheng uh, was a famous translator for Asian Greek uh, literature. Uh, he attended the Tsinghua School and uh, was awarded a scholarship scholarship from Gengzi Remittance. And then he started uh, uh, English literature and classics at the University of Ohio, Columbia, and from, uh for about uh, four years. Then he moved to the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. And stayed there for a year before heading back to China in 1934. So, as one of the very few Chinese uh, scholar, few Chinese who had knowledge of ancient uh, Greek, and as an industrious advocate of the sublimity of ancient Greek culture, Luo flourished as a translator during the difficult years of the of, of anti-Japanese war, while drifting from one place to another. The wielded uh, Greek history and the literature as carriers of patriotic uh, exaltations, a sentiment that is manifested in his translation of Aeschylus uh, portion and uh, his essays on Greece, written during his teaching in Sichuan province and published in 1943 when Japanese was ravaging China. So after the foundation of uh, the PRC, Luo started uh, uh, translating several Greek, Greek prose te- texts and Asian nature- literary series into Chinese. Another distinct, uh, one distinctive uh, feature of Luo's translation after 1949, comparing to his earlier approach in the Republican era, is his application of Marxist uh, theories on interpreting texts. So. I think before I start analyzing uh Luo's uh translation translated texts it's necessary to uh put uh, to to know some historical background of China at that time and uh, in order to put uh, Luo's practice into its historical uh context so there's two uh sense I want to w- emphasize one is the literary trends after 1949 and the another is the social influence uh, in China at that time. So from the 1950s to the end of the Cultural Revolution, cultural activities, especially literature in China, was largely dominated by political struggles and the ideological battles, which can be traced back to Mao Zedong's uh, talks at the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art uh, in 1942, in which he articulated that literature is in essence politicized existing to serve politics so in the following years more calls for a truly proletarian literature that is written by and for workers peasants and soldiers which rectified ideological champions that further defined and consolidated party control over literary activities from the 1950s until the end of the cultural revolution um, what I also want to emphasize is um, a difference between the Republic era and the, the, the PRC. So in the Republic era, literary activities and trends were closely related to the issues of modernity, uh, national salvation, and the reforming national character when China was suffering uh, one national crisis after another. However, Um, as uh, Liu Fan has rightly pointed out, after 1949, with one ideological champion following another, in the literary areas, uh, here I quote, obsession with China was superseded by adulation of the motherland and the people, end of quote. Uh, All literary works serve the ideological struggles and the task of inter- preteen, even Asian texts should not leave to bourgeois scholars. So the second uh, influence, uh, the second point is uh, Sueye influence in the 1950s. So simultaneous to the changing uh, literary trend was the increasing Sueye influence when the newly founded PRC practiced the Ling Chun one side policy. In the 1950s, the Sui Union and its advisors to, to China and the Russian experts also frequent the institute and China's major universities. Russian theories become a convenient example for the Chinese to develop for Marxist interpretation of texts and history. Chinese scholars showed a great enthusiasm for starting the works of Lenin and Stalin. So in the meantime, some, uh, but in the meantime, some Chinese intellectual intellectuals also showed the skepticism towards Studies dogmatic and simplistic interpretation of Marxism. So another thing I think is important to our understanding of law's translation is the uh, adjustment in educational sector in 1952. So at this time, the PRC started uh, for, uh, modifying its education and academic system based on the Soviet model through redistributing redistri- resources and scholars and redividing the colleges and the schools. So around this same time, uh, Zhou Yang uh, wrote a letter to encourage Luo to research and translate classical Greek literature for the motherland and the people. And they invited him to work at the newly founded Institute of Literary Studies in Beijing University. So I think here Zhou uh, might deserve a few more words. So Zhou played a crucial role in the debates over literary composition from the 1930s onward, and represented as the party's cultural official for the endorsement for the orthodox of ideological control over literary activities and the intellectuals after the foundation of the PRC. And during the 1950s and 1960s, Zhou acted as the co-leader for the literary movement and uh, ideological struggles and delivered several important speeches concerning literature and art criticism. So after, it might be possible after Joe's letter, Luo relocated to Beijing University and uh, from 1956, he started to learn Russian in order to catch up with other countries' scholarship on classical literature. So here I come from uh, here, like I come back to Luo's translation and his Marxist interpretation of ancient Greek texts. So one example I gave here is Luo's tran- Chinese version of Aristotle's rhetoric. He finished uh, uh, this translation in 1965, but published it in uh, 1986. Because of the interruption of the Cultural Revolution. And in the translator's uh, introduction, Luo quotes Lenin's interpretation of Aristotle's metaphysics, who says uh, Lenin says that the most characteristic feature of the metaphysics is its embryonic uh, exploration of dialectics. So Lewis agrees with Landon's comments and further comments on the dialectic features of the rhetoric. Uh, Lu also applies Marxist dialectic materialism and theories on class struggles to interpret Aristotle's political views as reactionary. So he found Aristotle's reactionary attitude, exemplified in his uh, Aristotle's elitist attack. attack on uh Gongshan Yee hu So I gave a uh, Chinese translation of the term, which literally means uh, in English is the new from the uh business and the industrial sectors. So Luo's comment Luo's translation uh is based on two uh passages from rhetoric which I gave on the uh, PowerPoint so here. So this is the original Greek uh, word and uh, Aristotle used the term to refer to the new rich in the context of, in the Greek context. So the new rich illustrated Aristotle's point on uh, nemesis with his uh, indignation, so the emotion of indignation and on ethos, so characters as affected by wealth so Luo translated the term into pofahu so which has a derogatory and a contemptuous sense in chinese context and gave it an attributive gongshang uh, yejie so in gongshang uh, yejie so uh, means uh so gongshang yejie is not uh, clear and uh, in the ancient uh, texts and the uh, based on Luo's English, so Luo's translation also relies on the English translators' work, phrasing. But in this English translation, there's no attributive to this new, uh, new rich. And also the analysis is this, this gongshang might uh, recall the traditional classification of Chinese, uh, of four occupations in ancient China, or maybe some division of occupations in ancient Greek. But I think the use of the lowest usage of the attributive should be understood within the context of socialist construction and transformation in China at that time. That is the change from private to state and collective ownership in agriculture, handicrafts and the capitalist industry and the commerce. So the use of the attributive properly conflicts the social classes in modern China with that in ancient Greece. So in addition, Luo wields the new rich from the industrial and uh, business sectors and the Democrats. So this again illustrates his perception of these types of people from this group uh, as contributors to the new democracy and the national salvation in the Republic, uh, Republican era, and during the socialist transformation in the 1950s. So, however, um, um, although the uh, the Soviet Marxism and the political, social, political condition of the the China at time at time influenced uh, uh, Luo's translation, but uh, they didn't uh, eliminate uh, Luo's autonomy as a translator. So Law's abridged translation of Aristotle's rhetoric demonstrates his attempt for comparatively systematic and comprehensive introduction of classical literature. Another question um, I think maybe at rate uh, we can ask from law's practice is uh, trusta- translatability. The questions um, I put on the PowerPoint are what was omitted in law's translation. How might the mission and the laws' choice of language affect the recipients in the host language? So I think on these questions, laws' uh, you, uh, like uh, the text surrounding the new rich also can like elucidate see, data, this point. What uh, uh, is on the this pop this slide is uh, the Luo English. Translation, um, so the sentences you say in both font are those that Luo translated. So only two sentences, or three, almost three sentences that Luo translated, and the word and sentences in underline are some of the cre- crucial informations that Luo omitted, like all these terms. So this is all the terms that I think important to understand Luo. Uh, Aristotle's uh, meaning, but Luo didn't translate. On this side is Luo's Chinese translation, and my back translation of Luo. So this can the length of Luo's translation can give you a sense of how uh, how many (laughs) he omitted, and uh, maybe also what informations are missed in his translation. So what missed in was translation as the sentences immediately before and after the new reach these terms and the sentences crucial to interpret aristotle's meaning and the intention as well as the significance of ancient greek social values such as Kalos kagathos, new guinea this is the two terms that are closely associated with athenian aristocratic and democratic values and what is also uh, diminished is the presence of Aristotle's intention, as I said before. So from this, we can see that Luo's autonomy instructs selecting certain passages to translate and omitting meeting other irrelevant and unimportant parts. is explicates his authority in the determining what part of ancient Greek literature is essential for the Chinese reader, for their literary studies and teaching, and what information was filtered in the process of translation. To conclude, Luo's pers- uh, personal intention, preference, and selection of specific chapters from Aristotle's rhetoric for translation and his production uh, of the Chinese version, including his word choices, his Marxist interpretation approach, testifies that, that the translation uh, translating Greek texts was not only literary exercise, but also closely related to and influenced by the larger national projects, such as ideological struggle, socialist construction and transformation. On the other hand, to a certain degree, Luo maintained his autonomy as a translator in deciding what to translate and what not. However, his abridged uh, translation for the Chinese reader also begs the question, how should we do translation if the past is a foreign country, and if there are perceptible differences between cultures and languages. So here I return to uh, the quotation I gave in the beginning and the support of the idea of Sikh translation proposed by Apia. So that is following the original language meaning, but supplying with explanatory notes and annotations for the reader. And to locate the text in a rich cultural and the linguistic context. So, this is my uh, presentation. Thank you all for listening. And I especially want to thank the organization committee for inviting me to present here. Thanks and for supporting.
2: All right, we're going to move on to our final presenter for the session. uh, And that is Claire Kelly. So Claire is a current PhD candidate at the School of English Drama and Film here at UCD University College Dublin. Um, Her research interests, uh, her research examines the processes and implications of the transformation of oral tradition into a literary product. Um, And she is presenting uh, today, I write as though I am telling the story orally, Jennifer Nansumbuga-Makumbi and the construction of an author as storyteller identity in the transnational literary market. Uh, Welcome to Claire. Thanks for being here.
5: Thank you. Thanks so much for the introduction. In her book, uh, The African Novel of Ideas, Jean-Marie Jackson begins her analysis on Jennifer Nansumbuga-Makumbi's novel, Chintu, with the statement that in African literary circles, Chintu's origins have become almost legendary. What Jackson is acknowledging in this sort of passing introductory comment is that Chintu is a story with a story, so that to speak about the book without acknowledging its associated narratives is somehow to neglect a key part of its presence. I would argue that Chintu and McCombie herself are surrounded by not one, but a series of accompanying legends that are articulated and dispersed through paratext and that mutate as they move into different geographic contexts. In this paper, then, I wish to analyse this shifting paratextual space surrounding Chintu with particular reference to how McCombie's identity as a storyteller author is articulated and interpreted in this transnational space. So Chintu is a multi-generational historical narrative set in Uganda between 1750 and 2004. It centres on the idea of an ancestral curse that was inflicted on the Chintu clan after Chintu Chida who is a fictional 18th century governor of Budu province, uh, accidentally killed his adopted son. The novel depicts several of Chinchujita's modern-day descendants and concludes with a chapter entitled Homecoming, in which members of the extended clan return to their ancestral village and attempt to extinguish the curse through ceremonial rituals. Uh, Chinchujita is the name of the first man on earth in the Ganda creation myth, and Ganda oral tradition is central to the novel. However, as well as drawing on Ganda myth, and folklore as the source of inspiration for her writing, McCombie is also engaged in a process of authorial self conception, in which through PowerText she makes visible not just the artistic products of her engagement with oral tradition, but in fact her artistic practice as a storyteller or author. For traditional oral storytellers, their craft takes place within specific settings and um, with established preparatory processes. For instance, in the opening of The First Woman, which is McCombie's second novel, she depicts the storytelling session in a rural home in Uganda in the 1970s. It is just before bedtime and the members of the household are gathered for the evening's entertainment. Chirabo, the novel's protagonist, is eager to begin telling her story. However, custom dictates that she must wait for her audience to grant her permission. Finally, Chirabo's grandfather says, Kin, you are our eyes. And this utterance gives her permission to tell her tale. Uh, although this example is culturally specific, it is illustrative of how in an oral setting, the role of storyteller is conferred on an individual through entrenched traditional practices and situational context. I characterize McCombie, however, not as a traditional oral storyteller, but as a storyteller author, by which I mean a writer who conceives of their work as a continuation or an interpretation of an oral tradition. Storyteller, aft of the authenticating contextual factors that I've just described. Uh, nevertheless, in McCombie's case, she does still conceptualize her writing process in terms of oral storytelling imagining herself speaking aloud to a ugandan audience as she works as she puts it uh, when i'm writing in my mind i'm talking to a ugandan and um, she elaborates on this process in another interview um, she writes that this is not about markets it's about harnessing that energy that an anticipated audience gives a story as it talks to an audience it knows will understand it you have no idea what this energy means to an author like me So while McCombie does draw on an oral mode of narrative creation to direct her work, unlike oral storytellers, this is a hidden private practice. Um, In this context, then, there is a need for a self-declaration of identity through paratext. To put it simply, in the absence of another authenticating mechanism, McCombie comes to be recognized as a storyteller uh, by declaring herself one. There are various components of her self-declaration as storyteller that are articulated in the epitextual corpus of Chintu such as uh, her emphasis on formative experiences of of oral storytelling in her grandfather's rural village, or her insistence that the primary function of her work is entertainment. However, for the sake of um, time, I'll focus in this paper on one key component, which is the idea of her speaking to a Ugandan audience. Uh, First, to briefly explain what I mean by paratext, um, as defined by Gerard Jeanette, paratexts are liminal devices and conventions, both within the book, which is peritext, and outside it epitext that mediate the book to the reader. Examples of peritexts could be dedications, cover art or acknowledgements, while examples of epitexts are interviews with the author or reviews of her, of her work. Paratexts then are strategic spaces which are often mobilized by publishing houses and authors to market the text to potential readers, but they also have an ontological function facilitating and defining a text's existence or as Jeanette puts it, a text presence in the world. In McCombie's case, she is very consistent in how she speaks about her work. In a 2014 interview, she explains that I tell stories as if I am performing. I imagine that people are listening. And in her opening statement at the launch of the novel in Kampala around the same time, she says, while I wrote the novel, I imagined all my readers looking like you. These are some early articulations of the idea that Chintu is written or indeed performed for Ugandans. This sentiment gains momentum through repetition so that it comes to be stated as fact in the discussion of the novel. Chintu therefore exemplifies the paratextual process that Jeanette theorizes of how external textual material can come to define a text's presence in the world. Um, For several years after its publication, Chintu was not available to purchase outside of East Africa. And so the novel's early epitexts are primarily local creations. Uh, This changed in 2017 when Transit Books published a U.S. edition of Chinchu. This moment of publication, therefore, allows us to assess how the conception of Chintu as a text addressing Ugandans withstands the transnational, or more accurately, the transcontinental expansion of the novel's market. The Transit Books edition includes an introduction by the American critic Aaron Beatty. Here, Beatty strives to convey the cultural position of Macombi and Chintu in Uganda to an American readership. He writes of Makumbi that it's hard to overstate what a rock star she is. A key component of this exposition is his reiteration of Mukumbi's imagined audience. Addressing non-Ugandan readers, he says, the main thing you need to know simply is that this novel is written for Ugandans. Baby then is someone who is attuned to this fact and understands that it is fundamental to the text's presence in the world. However, his efforts to reproduce the frame of Chintu's epitextual narratives for a US readership Reveal the fraught process of marketing a storyteller author in an uneven global literary market. In a Twitter thread, which um, you can see on the left of the slide there, uh, Beatty explains that uh, as an experienced bookseller, one of his aims for the introduction was to make money for Macombie. He hoped to convince American readers, who in his experience uh, are often reluctant to read African literature, to buy and read the book in financially significant numbers. He is therefore faced uh, with the conflicting task of explaining to a US reader that while this book is not designed for them, they should still definitely buy it. In order to achieve this, his initial adamant assertion that Chintu was written for Ugandans is watered down in the concluding lines of the introduction to um, Chintu was written then for people for whom the name Chintu means something. Now you are one of those people. He therefore surreptitiously ushers the Western slash American reader into the audience at the last minute suggesting that a few points of cultural context will, if admittedly not grant them front row seats, at least let them feel invited. However, in doing so, he necessarily grants himself the role of gatekeeper to the text, deciding and providing the information through which the reader becomes someone for whom the text was written. Um, This gatekeeping function is also spatially constructed as the reader of the Transit Books edition is prompted to enter the text through Beatty's words. It is precisely this paratextual construction which presents Beatty as the acceptable face of the novel, to use McCumbi's words, um, that made the introduction a subject of controversy amongst Makumbi's African fans. In a piece for a Brittle Press, Ella Wakatama Alfrey, who edited the Kwani, which is the Kenyan Trust, the Kwani Trust, which is the Kenyan edition of Chintu, writes that: I look at the cover and I see Chintu by Jennifer Nancy by Jennifer Macombie, an introduction by Aaron Beatty and all I really see is the decades of work promoting the telling of our own stories by ourselves and for ourselves being eroded. Macombie who was initially evasive or diplomatic when questioned about the controversy has recently expressed agreement with all three. In an episode of books and rhymes the podcast she says in having that introduction I stood behind a white man and I walked into America behind a white man. This vision of Chintu as a book that is directed at a Ugandan audience is in some ways a fiction. Although Makumbi does use Luganda words, uh, place names and phrases that will be unfamiliar to a foreign audience. The Luganda in the novel rarely goes unexplained, either through direct translation into English or careful contextualization. A sentence like in the quarterly Luchiko, the Parliament sessions, governors watch their breath is typical of how Luganda appears in the text. Um, there's a couple of other examples there as well. It's also relevant to recognise that McCombie wrote and edited Chintu as part of a PhD in creative writing at the University of Lancaster. Aspects of the work were altered in response to feedback from British teachers and peers, and so it is a text partially shaped by that audience. Furthermore, the publication of the Transit Books edition made Chintu a novel that had to be concerned with how how Western readers would view it, at least on an economic level. Um, None of this is to say that Makumbi is insincere with Ugandans, rather the point I'm making is that we come to understand that Ugandans are the audience for Chintu, not necessarily because of any textual signifiers, but because Makumbi tells us they are her audience. When an oral storyteller performs, their audience is obvious because it is visible. They perform for a specific group of people in an explicit and unambiguous way. Similarly, McCombie continually makes the audience of her work visible so that through reiteration, it comes to be, a, it comes to be central to the text's existence. Um, just how central is evident from the reaction to the introduction, which symbolically functioned to, to reorient Chintu towards the West. Um, to conclude then, I'd just like to look at two further examples um, to consider how McCombie's storyteller author identity has continued to be articulated in sort of later paratexts of her work. So the first is the uh, jacket edition of the advanced review copy of the UK edition of, uh, of the jacket design of the advanced review copy of the UK edition of McCombie's second novel, The First Woman. Uh, An advanced review copy, or ARC as they're often called, is a proof version of the book which is distributed to reviewers, booksellers, and other literary influencers in order to drum up publicity for the book prior to its publication. Uh, This arc is unusual in that it includes a large quote by the author on the back of the cover, which reads, I don't write for a Western audience. If I can understand Shakespeare, you can understand me. I think this is a clever decision by One World, uh, the publishing house of this edition, because it provides the epitextual frame that Beatty was attempting to recreate in his introduction. But it does so in Macombie's own words, rather than inserting an interpretive middleman. The prominent placement of the quote means that it is almost impossible for a reviewer to begin reading the novel with no prior knowledge of its intended audience. It also increases the likelihood that they will cite this perspective in their review, as indeed Barry Pierce does in the Irish Times when he writes For those who find McCombie's storytelling to be infuriating or wholly impenetrable in its choice and hyperlocalism, she has a wonderful, wonderfully succinct rebuttal If I can understand Shakespeare, you can understand me. This cover design is an example then of how a publishing house can use a peritextual intervention to prompt creators of epidex to articulate and therefore perpetuate a particular conception of the author's work. Although uh, traditional cultural publications like the book section of a newspaper still play a role in the promotion of new literature, increasingly social media and particularly Instagram has become a decisive space in literary marketing campaigns. There are thousands of so-called bookstagrammers who post regular book reviews and commentaries and have dedicated audiences. The most popular accounts, such as Well-Read Black Girl or Inquisitive Bookworm, have hundreds of thousands of followers. Like many contemporary book covers, then, this arc is designed for Instagram. The size, placement, and bold colors of the quote make it uh, the ideal image to share on a platform which rewards bright visuals and large, legible text. I've included two examples here, um, one from Vivek Tejuja, who's the cultural editor of Verve India, and one from One World themselves. Again, the social media friendly design of the cover demonstrates how the publisher's peritextual decisions can facilitate the dissemination of the idea that this book was not written for a Western audience. Um, the second paratext I want to look at um, is this YouTube video which is an interview with uh, Macombie for Creative North, which is a yearly conference in Manchester, which is where Macombie lives, for marketing professionals. As you may be aware, storytelling has become a marketing buzzword, referring to a technique of presenting information about a product or service in a narrative format. Macombie was therefore invited to speak at this conference as a genuine storyteller, as the interviewer calls her, um, to share her expertise in this medium. This commercial application of storytelling is a far cry from McCombie's early experiences of telling folk tales in her grandfather's rural village. This example, therefore, ser- therefore serves as a reminder that the terms or narratives that come to be attached to a work are always in flux in the global epitextual space. No matter how consistently reiterated and carefully constructed an authorial identity is, it will inevitably, inevitably be reinterpreted or co opted as it moves transnationally and is refracted through the local or specialised perspective of those that engage with it. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.